This will uh, probably be the last uh, church history lesson for a little while. Um, I leave on uh, Wednesday, and I uh, I didn't do a real good job. Uh, the, whoever does my schedule needs to be fired, but unfortunately that's me. Um, uh, I figured out uh, that starting Wednesday... For the next two and a half months, I will be home for two and a half weeks in two and a half months. So uh, two 20-day trips, and then uh, I'm going to be teaching over at the Master's Seminary uh, for a week, and then I've got an engagement in Dallas the next day. <laughs> so I'm actually going to be driving real early in the morning, uh, home, swapping out luggage and catching a flight for, for Dallas. It's good, good timing on my, my part. So anyways, um, uh, we're sort of be taking a little break for a while from church history, but, uh, don't, do not fear. We shall still persevere, Lord willing, and, uh, and get it, uh, get it done. We are still with, uh, Brother Luther and there is, uh, uh, some still some important things to uh, to discuss. Um, last week we uh, looked at uh, the issue of Luther and his um, views of the Jews, uh, the the two Luthers. In fact, uh, I, I forgot to mention it last week, but if you Look on YouTube. It hasn't been taken down yet. Um, I'm sure it will be in the not too distant future. Everything I've done will eventually be erased from uh, from YouTube's uh, politically correct memory. Um, but it's still up there at the moment. Um, uh, the presentation I made at a conference last November in Washington D.C. Uh, on the two Luthers, and we talked a little bit. So you could I expanded upon that. I read the quotes that I read last week. Uh, from Luther in regards to his views on the Jews and his context and the history of all of that. And uh, we talked about Johann Eck and Martin Bucer and, uh, and the fact there were some of the Reformers who uh, uh, broke away from that perspective and, and uh, were calling for, for tolerance and evangelism and so on and so forth. But... Um, including uh, primarily Osiander. But um, that sort of introduced us to the issue of, uh, again, the impact of sacralism, uh, the state church upon Luther and all the reformers. When we talk about Calvin, Calvin's still a sacralist. He's still a magisterial reformer. And so uh, when we eventually get around to Servetus, it's, it's all going to be you know, coming back to us again, this, this issue of the, the state church. But we saw the two periods in Luther's life, and so you've got Luther number one, 1510 to 1525, and you got Luther number two, 1525 onwards. It's not that all of his beliefs change or something. It's not like he would have, being that close, uh, noticed any major change. But from a historical perspective, we can see uh, a hardening, and, and let's just be honest, um, what you start seeing is, well, there's a guy on Twitter called Church Curmudgeon, uh, and um, he's he's a funny guy. He's 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 a comic. He makes funny comments, uh, especially about uh, youth leaders and uh, music leaders and things like that. 
that are that are normally hilarious. But um, uh, when we talk about a curmudgeon, um, well, Luther becomes a theological curmudgeon, uh, in essence. Uh, a lot of people would would basically say that there was a hardening of his uh, demeanor, shall we say, uh, starting after the peasants revolt and and it sort of continues on. Uh, it doesn't mean he be, you know became this a terrible, horrible, nasty person, but there was a uh, I don't know a hardening of his of his uh, demeanor toward toward others. And we can see some of this at one of the most important uh, events. Because like I said, you know, it's funny, I was looking at my church history notes, and a lot of these church history notes came from when I took church history. I had an excellent uh, professor, and I, I took it twice. Not because I failed the first time, I got an A the first time. I audited it uh, the second time because you could do that. Uh, I enjoyed it so much the first time. Um, and I look at my notes, and like most Luther biographies, it pretty much focuses... Um, on the beginning of Luther's life and, and up through about 1530. And then those last 16 years, he dies in 1546, as I mentioned, Eisleben, um, just sort of cursory. There's, there's, just, there's just not a whole lot to talk about. And um, uh, I mean, I'm sure Luther scholars that just you know live Luther can dig into that and find some stuff. But as far as stuff that really has an impact on the entire church, it's just sort of like slowly fading away. And um, but the one exception after 1525 to this, um, uh, you know, he's still writing and things like that. But uh, the, the the big issue is called the uh, big event is called the Marburg Colloquy. The Marburg Colloquy. Uh, which takes place between the 1st and 4th of October in um, 1529. And uh, this had been brought about, um, remember we had the Diet of Worms? Remember the Diet of Worms? Uh, the Diet is the meeting of the electors of the Holy Roman Empire. And you had in 1526, as I recall, um, a diet at Spire, Spire 1, where the Lutheran uh, electors outnumbered the Catholic electors, and hence a measure of freedom had been granted in matters of worship within the Holy Roman Empire in lands that had uh, electors that desired to have that Reformation freedom. Well, a couple years later, you have Spire II, and this time uh, Charles arranges things that he has the majority amongst the Roman Catholics, and so the Edict of Worms is reaffirmed, the condemnation of Luther, um, and those freedoms are withdrawn. And so there was in the uh, legal setup of, it's not a constitution, but the 
documents uh, by which the Holy Roman Empire functioned and by which people were elected. Um, there was a, an option for a minority group of electors to protest the action of the majority. So there's a formal process whereby a minority of electors could choose to utilize this and to protest the actions of the diet. And so this is what they did at Spire II. They protested against the withdrawal of the freedoms that Spire I had given them, and they protested against the reaffirmation of the Edict of Worms back in 1521 that uh, condemned uh, Luther. And so, uh, as a result, uh, that's where the term Protestant came from, is they were the ones protesting uh, the actions of the majority at the Diet of Spire II, um, where Charles sort of took over and, and uh, uh, made sure that he had the majority this time and uh, dealt with the politics in, in that way. So that's where the term came from. And so it's, it's amazing to me that, for example, I remember, I don't remember what year it was, but I was, uh, I was doing a debate at Trinity College in Dublin. And afterwards, it was, it was a Muslim. And afterwards, this uh, Irishman you know, comes up to me and says, would you call yourself... A Protestant, and it's it's amazing what that means there in comparison to where it what it would mean over here, um, and all the distinctions that we would make in regards to that, and what it meant historically, what it came to mean historically, uh, all the different groups that fall under that rubric, but uh, it, it really was a a political term at the, at the time that had theological overtones because it was a state church. And of course, what they're, they're fighting with is how can you have a state that has more than one church? And the you know, Holy Roman Empire, <laughs> not exactly unbiased uh, along those lines, and so there's, there's where it comes from. And so uh, Philip of Hesse was a, what we would call, Protestant uh, leader, a Protestant uh, uh, politician, uh, and he recognized that if this Reformation movement was going to continue, that it would require the men who were leading it to get together and to present a united front. A divided Protestant movement would be easier for its enemies to pick off than a unified one. And by 1529, you know, we'll go back and pick these guys up, but you've got Ulrich Zwingli, you've got Martin Bootser. Bootser is in Strasbourg, Zwingli is in Zurich. And Zwingli has been active, uh, he would say before Luther, but most people would say 
He was just a little bit after Luther. But certainly from uh, the, you know, 15, 19, so at least 10 years, okay? And we'll, we'll go back and look at Zwingli. Um, if you watch the Radicals, you, you are introduced to Zwingli. Uh, Luther doesn't even appear in the Radicals, but Zwingli does. And Zwingli has much more interaction with the early Anabaptist leaders um, than, than Luther would. And so uh, the Zwingli and Luther, you know, Bootser is in Strasbourg, Bootser's important, but Bootser is somewhat retiring in the sense of his, uh, his personality is not nearly as strong as Zwingli and, and Luther, both of whom are very strong personalities, but in slightly different ways. Um, uh, Zwingli, uh, for example, is an incredibly talented musician, as was Luther, but not as talented as Zwingli. Um, and was, uh, for example, Zwingli was considerably uh, better trained in Hebrew than Luther was. Uh, Luther had to depend a lot on Melanchthon and, and others. Uh, at the university uh, for the translation of the Old Testament, for example, into, into German. So anyway, um, Bootser is more of a retiring uh, uh, personality, so he's not as, uh, as well-known. Uh, but Strasbourg is a very, very important uh, reformed city at this point in, in time. And again, you see Bootser in the Radicals as well, if you watch the film. Uh, you'll see that uh, at one point Michael Sattler goes and he, he meets with Martin Bootser. And, um, and again, the issue where it one, it's interesting in the film, at one point Bootser pushes the, the cup away from him. We can't have fellowship with you. What was it about? Sacralism. It, it was about whether uh, Michael Sattler could pick up arms uh, and fight against the, uh, the Turks. And uh, there was a deep pacifist strain in Sattler's theology, and so can't do it. It goes back to the state church issue again. And uh, so you see that presented in, uh, in the film, if you haven't had a chance to see it, but I've been telling you to watch it now for a few months, so uh, uh, I can sort of assume. Anyway, so there has been uh, already at this point interaction between Zwingli and Luther, and it well, I think I told you, but I'll, I'll, uh, if I didn't, I'll tell you now. Uh, last uh, July, uh, I was, uh, you know, looking forward to going to Germany uh, on the Luther tour, which we did in uh, in September. And so I was doing preparation. I was reading books and stuff like that. I read a lot of books in preparation for that uh, that trip, and. One of the books that I read was the audio version of Luther's Table Talk. And so, you know, I'm, I'm riding up uh, what's called uh, Juniper Pass uh, outside of Evergreen in, in Colorado. It's, um, it's a road I've been up many, many times now. Uh, and it's beautiful. It starts at 7,500 feet. It goes up to 11,100 up to a place called Echo Lake. Oh, if you ever get up there, it's gorgeous. Just one of my favorite favorite places uh, on the planet. Anyway, um, I'm riding along listening to Luther. And I had been listening on the drive up and stuff, and so now I was continuing on as I'm riding, and 
and that he had just just gone through this really I was thinking to myself, wow, that is so pastoral. That is so relevant still today. I mean, it's just such good stuff. I'm going to have to remember where this was and, and, uh, you know, maybe I'll comment on the dividing line or something like that. And then the next section starts. And I'll, I'll never forget. I, I remember which direction I was. The, the, the road does this number a bunch. So I don't remember exactly which one of those it was, but, uh, I remember which of the two directions, uh, it was. Uh, that I hear in my, my earphones, well, not earphones, but bone conduction headphones, uh, I hear uh, the electronic voice reading Luther uh, saying, there is no hope for Zwinglius. There is no hope for Zwinglius. And I was just like, did I just hear that? I, you know, I saw my, I've got one of those little teeny tiny iPods. It's got the little 30 second go back thing. You know, did I hear that? You know, and so I hit it and there is no hope for Zwinglius. So right here in Luther's writings, uh, Zwingli, there's no hope for him. He's not a Christian. He's not saved. Um, the, the term that he's going to use is, is he's of a different spirit. And you go, wow, you know, what, did they have Trinitarian uh, controversies? Did they disagree over how justification takes place? You know, what's, what's the story here? And it had nothing to do with any of that. Um, there were really strong feelings between the Swiss reformers and the German reformers. And that was part of it as well, to be honest with you, because they're... The Swiss and the Germans didn't necessarily get along all that well all the time. Uh, you know, uh, Swiss-German and German-German are very different. Uh, Swiss-German is, they only, they only have two tenses. That's what they told me when I was in, in Zurich. They only have two tenses. It's just a, I tried listening to it. It's like, sounds familiar, but I don't have a clue what you're talking about. It's, it's very, very different. My friends who live there, uh, when I stayed in Zurich, uh, the guy I stayed with who heads up the, the, the school there where I was teaching is from California. He's, he's a surfer dude. <laughs> and so he, he speaks, obviously, California English, uh, but he speaks both German and Swiss German. Um, and so it, it, you know, he was trying to describe to me what the, what the differences are, and it's like, wow, very, very different. So um, there, were, there were other things, I think, behind this, but... There had been some pretty strong words um, exchanged between uh, both sides, and Philip of Hess is like, guys, uh, we can we can either stand together or hang separately. Uh, we need to present to uh, Charles a united, orthodox uh, statement of faith. We need to we need to write a statement of faith on the things we can agree on, and so they traveled, he invited them and provided for them to come uh, to meet uh, in um, Marburg. And it's a, it's a beautiful place. Um, let me see here. Um, yeah. Um, here, is, uh, here is the room uh, at the castle uh, where, they, uh, where they met. And uh, a fairly large room, and uh, 
as, as Luther traveled there, uh, he sort of traveled, shall we say, in style. And um, he was uh, lauded uh, by, the, by the people as he's coming there as, as a hero. Uh, Bootser is in attendance, Ocolampadius, Melanchthon, uh, Zwingli. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty uh, good representation of the continental reformers. Uh, uh, Bootser had some connections in, uh, uh, over in, uh, in England as well, but primarily the continental uh, reformers. Uh, Zwingli arrives significantly more quietly uh, and is what we see in Marburg. Uh, what we see at Marburg, um, as I've read on it, um, as I especially read on it after visiting uh, Marburg itself in the castle, um, Zwingli comes off a whole lot better than Luther does. Um, they come together to ostensibly write a 15-point statement of faith. And so they gather together, and the, the, you've got Ocolampadius, you've got Bootser, you've got Melanchthon, you've got Luther, you've got Zwingli. Bootser had entered into the Reformation having heard Luther uh, at, at Heidelberg, uh, what, 11 years earlier. So Luther was really his hero. But in listening to the presentations and discussions during the colloquy, uh, he is convinced of Zwingli's position. Well, what was the primary difference? Well, like I said, you know, historians look back on the Marburg colloquy. Uh, Roman Catholic apologists and historians look back upon the Marburg Colloquy as the great example of why Protestantism can't work. Sola Scriptura can't work. And Marburg proves it. Here you've got a bunch of guys saying we need to go to the Bible and the Bible alone, and they cannot agree on a basic statement of faith. So from their perspective, that's what Marburg is. It's a colossal failure, and that demonstrates that Sola Scriptura cannot, cannot function. The reality is that they agreed on 14 out of 15 points. And I can guarantee you, uh, you look at modern Roman Catholicism, you look at Boston College or something like that, and they wouldn't agree on one out of 15 points with a pope from only 100 years ago. They really wouldn't. That's how wildly diverse um, are the theological views that are allowed and even fostered by the current pope within Roman Catholicism. Um, but 14 out of 15 points, so Trinity, deity of Christ, um, scriptures, resurrection, justification, sanctification, 14 out of 15, they agree to. That's a lot. Um, and as uh, one individual pointed out years ago, and I think it's an appropriate thing, very often when Rome tries to present the need for her ultimate authority, what she does is she tricks us into allowing her to compare apples and oranges. She says, look at, look at us Roman Catholics. We are so 
united with one another. And you Protestants, 32,000 denominations. There aren't 32,000 denominations, but that's what they'll say. Um, and you're all divided, and you're all fractured, and you all can't get along, and see, that's why you need the Pope. And it's been a very effective argument. They've gotten a lot of people to, to buy that. Um, but they're comparing apples and oranges. Um, they're comparing groups that say the Bible alone to just themselves. What they should do is compare people who say the Bible alone to people who say the Bible plus something else outside the Bible. Well, that also creates a fascinating group of, of religious movements, including Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a bunch of others, who don't agree on anything, even on God. They'd have zero out of 15. With Solo Scripturia, you get 14 out of 15. Might tell you a little something, but they don't ever do it that way. They, they're, they're like, no, it's just, it's just us. We're the only ones. It's like, well, okay, whatever. Um, what was number 15? Well, you all probably know it was the Lord's Supper. And it was the nature of the Lord's Supper. That light is going to drive me insane. It's probably driving everybody sitting underneath it insane, too. Uh, uh-oh, the electrician rises. <clears throat> Who himself was sitting under a light that's not working either. So uh, we will now turn all the lights off, and we will be in the dark. And that's, that's it's the front one. There we go. Oh, well, okay, we could do it that way. That's not what I meant, actually. <laughs> I, I was just simply saying it, it just sort of looks like the, it, it, like it, it's possessed or something. The lamp issue right now, it could possibly turn into a ballast issue. Ballast issue, yes. Well, anyway, I was just noticing it. It's, it's okay. We, uh, uh, Brother Cardell needs to be able to write his, his notes. And uh, so as long as it stays dead... Then, as long as it stays in the dark, then we're then we're good. So we're we, at least it's balanced uh, as it's as it's going back. Anyway, twenty years from now, someone's going to be listening to us. Oh, they had uh, ballast issues uh, at PRBC in uh, May of 2018. Anyway, uh, the the topic, of course, was the Lord's Supper and the fact that Zwingli had come to the conclusion uh, early on in the Swiss Reformation, that the supper was a, what would be called the memorialist view. It is a memorial, um, and it is a memorial only. Uh, There is no uh, alteration of anything. Uh, This is very strictly to be taken in a symbolic sense when Jesus says, this is my body, um, he is doing this during the course of the, uh, of the uh, Passover meal where you know, they just had the Passover meal where everything had symbolism. Everything on the table uh, symbolized something in the history of the people of Israel. And so it would have been understood that way by the apostles, so on and so forth. Luther had abandoned transubstantiation. Uh, Luther did not believe that the elements are transubstantiated through sacramental authority when the priest says, hocus corpus meum. So he had abandoned, he had recognized that the idea of transubstantiation itself was a much later development. The term itself doesn't appear for a thousand years after the birth of Christ. Uh, It's based upon Aristotelian categories of accidents and substance and so on and so forth. And so he had abandoned it. However, 
Um, you know, when, when we look back and we compare someone like a Luther and a Calvin, Calvin is a systematizer. He's a systematic theologian. Uh, he wants to uh, handle truth in such a way that it can be examined in its in, broadly or up close, so on and so forth. Luther was more of a theologian of the heart. He wasn't nearly as concerned about the concept of consistency. Um, and so even to this day, uh, Luther, one of the f- absolute favorite terms amongst Lutheran theologians, especially when you have dialogue with them between Calvinists and Lutherans even to this day, is the term mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. So I'll say it's A and it's not A, but hey, it's a mystery. And they're really, you know, once, once you play the mystery card, it's like, we're done because there really isn't anything more to say. One side is, has entered into mystery and there's no debating in mystery. And a lot of that went back to Melanchthon more than to Luther, but some of it did go back to Luther. And Luther had, for example, uh, when it came to the issue of baptism, both Zwingli and Luther had kept it, but for, kept infant baptism, but for different reasons. The magistrates in Zurich had demanded that he do so. It was very plain that in the early 1520s, he was playing with the idea of abandoning infant baptism because his exegesis did not give it to him in the New Testament. And the early Anabaptist leaders who had been his students reminded him in debate, Hugh agreed with us on this initially. And then when the magistrates said, no, now all of a sudden you're changing your tune. You've been inconsistent. We're the ones being consistent with what you taught us. That got them banished or drowned. Um, So uh, he had certainly come to that conclusion on his own. Luther, justification by faith, and yet some concept of infant regeneration. How do you put those together? Well, you come up with the idea of infantile faith. That the, that the faith that a child shows toward its parents, even in toward its mother, in reaching for the breast, is, is infantile faith. So faith proceeding, resulting in justification. Um, no, you can't put those together, but that's what Luther did. And so when it came to the supper, um, the... the the terminology that has been used in some circles is called consubstantiation. Now, many Lutherans hate that. That's not what we believe. It's not what we believe. Not what we believe. Others will say, well, yeah, it sort of is what we believe. And then they have arguments with each other, and we'll leave that to them. But consubstantiation is based upon a, a particularly unique Lutheran idea uh, of the ubiquity of the body of Christ. That the body of Christ is ubiquitous. That uh, in Lutheran theology... Some of the attributes of the divine are transferred to the human in Christ. Now, this is troubling to me. This is, this is one of the reasons there aren't too many Lutheran apologists, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, not only has Lutheranism as a general whole gone extremely liberal, as you see in the ELCA, but there's other reasons. Um, there are some, but this is difficult. There's, there's one that I can, know, I can think of today, and this is not a subject that I've ever heard him address. But the idea of the communication of some divine attributes to the human nature of Christ, so that his body becomes ubiquitous. It is omnipresent. And so you can say that Christ's body is, is around, under, above, 
the elements. And so you are partaking of Christ's body because his body is ubiquitous in the Lord's Supper. So it is the body of Christ. It doesn't just represent the body of Christ. But wouldn't that naturally then lead to the idea that anything you eat no. anytime ever? No. So it's ubiquitous but not omnipresent. Mystery. Mystery. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, it, it's specifically in the supper, and it's a specific thing commanded by God, and therefore it's only relevant at that particular point in time. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't, but it's, it's mystery. And once you, once you play the mystery card, you don't have to worry about things like that. It's just, you, you, just, you just move on from there. Uh, so no, it doesn't make sense. But anyway, um, so at the, now there had already been back and forth. And when Luther was invited to Marburg and was told that Zwingli was going to come, initially he said, I ain't going to meet that man. I'm not going to be in the same room with that man. But Philip of Hess really, you know, please, please, please. And so all, the, all that I've read would indicate that when they arrive, um, Zwingli is uh, very gentlemanly and, and kind toward Luther, very uh, deferential toward him. And Luther doesn't even want to shake Zwingli's hand. He is, he is not. Uh, gentlemanly or brotherly toward him. Um, as each side gives their presentations, Luther is, is given the opportunity to give his, his view on each of the points. And like I said, they agreed on 14 out of the 15 pretty early on. But once they get to that 15th, Swing, uh, Luther gives his presentation, then Zwingli gets up. And the uh, vast majority of the written witnesses say that he just knocked it out of the park. Uh, he, he quoted early church fathers. He made very strong biblical argumentation, not only against transubstantiation, but uh, against Luther's view without skewering him. He was very careful in how he did it, but he very strongly defended his position. Like I said, Bootser is like, Zwingli uh, takes his, his position after that, that point in time. Um, there is a famous, there is a, a painting uh, that is in uh, the uh, in the castle, and uh, it's it's really fascinating because you you've got Lu, uh, Bootser and uh, Melanchthon and Bootser down here. They're talking. Bootser, uh, Melanchthon has his Greek New Testament open, uh, but over here you've got Zwingli. And then you've got Luther, and and just the way that Luther's standing with his arm back, and and he's 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 trying to, you know, uh, Zwingli has his arm extended, Luther has his arm back. I'm not going to touch you. Um, has this look on his face, but the most important thing is he's pointing to the table, and on the table, I, I zoomed in when I took the picture of the painting. On the the table is written on the tablecloth in chalk in Greek, esti, esti, is. And so the, uh, the, the story is, and it, and it comes down to us in different forms, uh, the story is that, well, there's a tablecloth there, whatever, uh, Luther writes on the table in front of everyone, 
uh, is or hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And he just is, no matter what you say, this is, this is, this is. And what's, well, you know, ever, ever, that's like, that's like arguing with people on Twitter. I mean, you know, it just really is. It's just, it's just, um, that's all, that's all, that, that was what he was reduced to was pointing to that on the table. Is, is, is. You can't get around this. It just is. And, uh, and it's not like Zwingli didn't have an answer for that. He gave all sorts of places where, where Jesus, you know, said, I am the vine. Same verb, you know, I am the vine. I am the door. I'm the, he goes through all of them. And, and, um, Luther's like, he's just absolutely obdurate. And so, they're stuck. And Philip of Hess is going, guys, 14 out of 15, we're, we're there. And so they actually write up a document, and then they just honestly say, we cannot agree on this, this last point. And as, you know, so Philip of Hess is like, but, all right, but what about our view of one another? What, what do we say? And, and Zwingli, again, is... I am, I am open to being corrected. I, I honor Brother Luther and God's work in his life, and I accept him as my brother. And that's where Luther says before them all, you are of another spirit. You are of another spirit. He will not um, identify Zwingli, uh, let alone as a, as a fellow Reformation leader, but you're of another spirit. He will not have fellowship with him. And that is where it ends. That's, that, that's, that's how it, it broke up, October 4th. Um, so what we, what we see, Luther comes across as a rather curmudgeonly fellow uh, at Marburg. And he loses some support as a result. Um, there is a, an, a, a noticeable realignment Amongst some of these men, because there, you know, the, the others that were there, Casper uh, Hedio, uh, Johannes Brentz, Justus Jonas, uh, I mentioned Ocolampadius, Andreas Osiander, who later would write in defense of the Jews. Um, he's there, and there's more of a shift toward what would be called the Reformed, uh, Zwingli, Calvin, eventually, I mean, Calvin is converted right around this time. So he's not there yet. He will be very quickly. Um, more toward that stream of things. And Luther loses some of that support, but he doesn't care. Partly, partly because it seems that in his perspective, he was still holding on to some hope that maybe... Charles could be persuaded to allow for freedom for his movement. He's still looking to the princes fundamentally for the future of the Reformation. And so there's some evidence of some of his letters that he's like, there is no way that I'm going to have fellowship with or brook anything with Zwingli because I know if I do, that's it with Charles. That's it. So there is, there is politics involved, unfortunately, uh, even in the theological issue here. And does that still happen today? Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, it does. And it's easier for us, almost 500 years removed, um, to look back and see that once we can read everybody's letters. You know? But at the time, it looks like you're just arguing about the Bible when that's not actually really the case with everybody. And so, uh, you know, this is only 12 years after the technical start of the Reformation. I'd say it's right at the end of the first decade, really, of, of the real Reformation as far as, uh, you know, a movement, a multinational uh, movement. And once again, 14 out of 15 ain't half bad in this fallen world, uh, but it wasn't 15 out of 15. And we still see some of the results of that to this day. Um, in, you know, if, if you've never had the conversation with a Lutheran brother or sister, um, you don't know that really, honestly, not much has changed in five centuries. We still end up arguing about the same stuff. Um, uh, though, unfortunately, there's just so much liberalism now, especially on the Lutheran side, that it's maybe not as uh, common a, a conversation as it, as it once was. Uh, but Zwingli ends up looking pretty good. Luther doesn't look so so good uh, as they have that. And what's interesting is Zwingli only has two more years of life. He is killed at the Battle of Kappel. He dies with a sword in his hand. Uh, he is, uh, as we will see, chaplain for the, uh, the army, uh, Zurich's army, and in a battle with another Swiss canton, a Catholic Swiss canton. Uh, he is mortally wounded, and then when the Roman Catholics realize who's under that, that tree over there. They mutilate his body and, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And it is said that when word arrived in Wittenberg in 1531 of uh, Zwingli's death, Luther made one comment. He lives by the sword, dies by the sword, and went on. That was it. Showed no... No compassion uh, whatsoever. Uh, but like I said, there's no hope for Zwinglius. So from his perspective, uh, that difference on the nature of the presence of Christ in the supper um, was enough to, for, in his mind to, to deny to Zwingli, who believed in everything else that he believed in, um, uh, standing as a fellow brother and sister in Christ. And it makes you really think about where we draw the line and how easy it is uh, to identify someone who agree agrees with you on 14 out of 15 things. Now, if it's the 15th thing is the Trinity, okay, but how many, pe how many people could you come up with a list of, of 15 theological things? You disagree on the Trinity, but you agree on 14 other things. It's not going to happen. This is one of the last things. And, and you know, it's the old, what's, what's the core? And then what is the important stuff around that? And then what's the adiaphora around that? And those are the things you got to think about. And uh, can, we, can we forgive Luther for not having had quite enough time to really think all that type of stuff through? I mean, he's still an outlaw. He, the, there, there are still people who want him dead. Uh, okay, well... It's going to impact things. Yeah, sure, it's going to impact things. But uh, it does make us think through a lot of this stuff, and uh, we need to continue to think that stuff through to, uh, to the present day. So 
we will, uh, whenever it is, I'll, I am here again, sometime in the future, assuming that I survive uh, all the travel I've got coming up, we will um, finish up Luther. We'll talk a little bit about Melanchthon. Uh, we got to talk about Ulrich Zwingli uh, as well, uh, and we will move on from there. Okay? Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time. We do thank you for the evidence of history and its witness to us. Help us to think through, in light of what has happened in the past, similar situations in our day. Uh, use this to be, make us to be better servants of yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.